ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد فان احسن الكلام كلام الله وخير الهدى هدى محمد صلى الله عليه وسلم وان شر الامور محدثاتها وكل محدثه بدعه وكل بدعه ضلاله وكل ضلاله في النار uh, so this is our third lesson on the series of the virtues or the excellences on the statement la ilaha illallah a 40 hadith on this topic and we have been through the first three hadith the first one was the hadith of ibn abbas radiyallahu anhu anhuma about the messenger of allah sallam sending muaz radiyallahu anhu to yemen to give da'wah to the jews and the christians who were present in in yemen in that time so we took some uh, benefits out of that hadith and from them the main ones were that the first obligation upon any person any servant any person is to simply testify that none has the right to be worshiped except allah alone and also the methodology of da'wah how to give da'wah second hadith uh, likewise was the hadith in which the messenger of allah sallam was going through the marketplace and saying to the people openly say la ilaha illallah so the messenger sallam would go out to the people in the marketplaces and invite them to islam and those people clearly understood the meaning of la ilaha illallah they, they knew exactly what it meant and what it required of them and the implications which it had and that's why in the hadith there used to be uh, behind the messenger of allah sallam there used to be a man Abu Lahab who would be walking behind him whilst the messenger was on his riding beast and saying to the people say la ilaha illallah he would throw him with stones and say don't listen to this man because this man is a kadhab is a liar so despite that the messenger of allah sallam would go out face these harms face this ridicule face these lies and still invite the people to tawhid the third hadith that we looked at in uh, the last lesson was hadith which mentions the descriptions of the messenger of allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam in the torah and we mentioned in the hadith uh, the torah which was present in their time then it was cited for by from from one of the, by one of the companions and it mentions the description of the messenger of allah sallam in the torah and which agrees with what is found in the quran we mention an ayah in the quran in surah al-a'raf which has the same descriptions and so we discussed that in length in the previous lesson uh, and we looked at some evidences uh, from that which is found in the writings of the previous prophets where they establish this prophet where he where he was to come from what his lineage would be what his call would be who his enemies would be how he would uh, overcome them and be victorious he would come with a new recital a new hymn a new recital which is the quran he would come with a fiery law which is the sharia all these things are described in the torah with respect to the messenger of allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam so all of these hadith in that hadith actually mentions that he will correct the previously distorted religions and he will correct it by way of la ilaha illallah and so this is the evidence in that hadith that the kalima la ilaha illallah that it is something which guides and something which corrects previously corrupted religions altered religions so this brings us then to today's lesson and so we come to the fourth hadith and the chapter heading bab fi annaha ya'ni al-kalima a'la maratib al-iman chapter that it meaning the declaration the kalima la ilaha illallah 
is the highest of the levels of Iman. The highest of the levels of Iman. And so this hadith is the hadith of Abi Huraira, radiallahu anhu, قال, who said, قال رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم الإيمان بدع وسبعون شعبة So he reports that the messenger of Allah وسلم, he said Iman comprises 70 odd branches of faith of 70 odd branches and in another narration بدع وستون شعبة 60 odd branches فَأَفْضَلُهَا قَوْلُ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ The best of them, the most superior of them, the most excellent of them, is the statement, لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ وَأَدْنَاهَا إِمَاتَةُ الْأَذَى عَنِ الطَّرِيقِ And the least of them, the lowest of them, is to remove something harmful from the floor. وَالْحَيَاءُ شُعْبَةٌ مِنَ الْإِيمَانِ and al-haya, which is shame or modesty, is a branch of iman. And it is reported by al-Bukhari and Muslim. The wording is that of Muslim. So from this hadith now, there are numerous benefits. There are many benefits. So from those benefits, the first of them, which obviously is the, 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 the shahid or the point of evidence that relates to our topic, which is, the excellence of La ilaha illallah, this hadith indicates again, the excellence of the statement La ilaha illallah, and that it is the highest of the levels of the religion, the highest of the levels of iman. We see in another hadith, Ra'sul Amr al-Islam, Ra'sul Amr al-Islam, that the, the, the chief part of, of, of the affair, the chief part of the affair is Islam. And what is meant by Islam is At-Tawheed. At-Tawheed. And to actualize La ilaha illallah in your deeds, in your behavior, in your, in your statements, in your worship. This is the meaning of Islam. The chief part of Islam therefore is Tawheed. To actualize Tawheed and to practice Tawheed. So this is the first benefit, this is the, the obvious benefit that we are taking from this hadith, the excellence of La ilaha illallah, it is the greatest of the branches of Iman. The second benefit is that in this hadith we see that Iman has been described as something which has many different qualities and many different traits and many different characteristics. So Iman isn't just one thing, it's not just one thing. It comprises of many things, and all of those things are from Iman. All of those things collectively are from Iman. So, for example, the prayer is Iman. A salah, this, this is Iman. And fasting, a psalm, this is Iman. And all of the various other deeds, the pillars, the arkan, the emphasized obligations, and then the other obligations, all of them, every single deed, righteous deed, it is from Iman, it is Iman. So this is the second thing that the Hadith tells us, that Iman has many different branches, has many different components, many different elements. And all of them are from, from within Iman itself. The third benefit that we learn from this Hadith is, that from all of those things which make up the religion, and which are the deeds of Islam, then... Some of them are superior to others. They are not all at the same level. And this is clear from the hadith because we see that the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he said, Adnaha the highest of them, and Adnaha, the lowest of them. So in between, obviously, there is a, a, a scale or a spectrum of, of different deeds which have different levels and ranks. And this shows that not all of the branches of Iman, not all of the deeds are equal. Rather, they vary with each other in excellence. So that's the third benefit that we take from this hadith. The fourth benefit that we take from this hadith is also, and this is a very important point of evidence from this hadith, is that when we speak of iman, faith, iman, it isn't just something that exists only in your heart. Rather, iman 
is something that it starts initially in the heart, obviously, with belief, with tasdiq, with the actions of the heart, with inqiyad, with compliance, with love, and so on and so forth. And then it comes, and then it comes and it is expressed on the tongue. And then it manifests on the limbs by way of righteous deeds. So iman isn't just something that is only in the heart. This is an incorrect understanding. It is in fact one of the early deviant ideas or beliefs which entered into the Muslim nation towards the end of the first century when people began to say actions, deeds, works, righteous deeds, they are not from iman. Iman is only what is in the heart. And this is a very dangerous and very evil, very corrupt idea because it leads to the destruction of, of Islam itself. And so, when we speak of Iman, then it is something that is in the heart, and the evidence is in this hadith. So let's go through it one by one. So, at the beginning it says, فَأَفْضَلُهَا قَوْلُ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ So the statement, لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ So clearly, Iman is statement. Right? Because it says, قَوْلُ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ So when you say, لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ This now is from Iman. Speech. When you express with your tongue, whether it is, لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ In this case, whether it is dhikr, any other type of dhikr, whether it is you are enjoining good, you are commanding your family with, with some good, with some good deed, or you are commanding others with good deeds, or you are prohibiting someone from evil deeds, all of these are statements made by the tongue. So iman therefore is speech. This is clearly indicated in the hadith. The second thing which the same statement indicates is that when you say, when you say la ilaha illallah, this is now a shahada. This is shahada. You are giving, you are a witness, you are witnessing to something that you are declaring to be true. Right? A witness he comes and on, on the basis of what he sees, what he saw with his senses, he gives evidence, he gives testimony. And he's testifying to something which he knows to be true by way of his, of his senses. So likewise, when a person is saying, La ilaha illallah, he's only expressing something which in his heart he believes to be true. So therefore, there has to be along with this belief in the heart as well. So therefore, this sentence, Paulu. It also indicates by implication or by default or by inclusion, it indicates the belief in the heart. For you to testify, then obviously you must be believing in the truth of what you are going to testify with. Unless of course you are a hypocrite. The munafiq, the hypocrite, he says that which he does not believe. Right? So this is why belief in the heart is from Iman. It is from Iman. So therefore, so far, Iman is upon the tongue, and likewise it is in the heart. Also, وَأَدْنَاهَا إِمَاتَةُ عَنِ To remove something harmful from the floor is an action. It's an action you do physically with your limbs. And so this indicates that Iman is also something that takes place on your limbs. So the salah, for example, the prayer, the fasting, the, the, the pillars, the hajj, and then all the other good deeds, all of them are actual deeds. So iman is also something that takes place on the limbs. And finally, Al-haya, the shame or modesty, is basically, it is a feeling, it is an action of the heart. Your heart, it acts as well. Your heart has actions. And its actions are the various emotions that you feel. Fear, love, hope, reliance, awe, remorse. All of these are actions of the heart. So the heart, it acts. And so we see from this hadith, and therefore this hadith indicates all of these four things. The belief of the heart, the actions of the heart, the statement of the tongue, and the actions of the limbs. So Iman exists in all of these four. It is inward and it is outward. 
and the inward is connected to the outward. There's a binding link like this between the two. You cannot, you cannot separate them. And so all of this indicates, and this is the statement of the Sahaba and their students and their students from the righteous Salaf. They used to say, Al-Imanu Qawlun wa Amalun. Iman is speech and action. It is inward and outward. And this is a refutation of those people who want to strip the religion. They want to remove righteous deeds and they want to limit it only to just belief in the heart. This belief, this idea is called irja. Irja, which means to remove actions from faith, to defer actions from faith. And this is one of the most harmful, evil, destructive innovations that entered into Islam. On account of this, you encourage sin. You encourage and you promote sin. Because you are saying to people, look, faith is only what is in the heart. It doesn't matter what you do. Faith is only what is in your heart. And so when a person thinks this and he believes this, this is true, then he will think, well, he will, he will start moving in the direction that the Christians went into. Because the Christians, they removed actions from faith. They said faith is just a belief that you have in your heart. You just believe Jesus died for your sins. And to observe the law, to do righteous actions, these will not, they, they, they are nothing. You don't need to observe the law. You don't need to rely upon actions. So this is the direction they went in, which is misguidance. And so this would be the implication that when you tell people faith is only just belief, what you believe in your heart. You just believe that Allah is one and that's it. You are saved just by that alone. And this is incorrect. Rather, as we see many times in the Quran, Allah Zawajal, he, he has made actions to be a cause, amongst the causes of entering into paradise. Many times we see in the ayat, Bima kuntum ta'malun. Bima kuntum ta'malun. On account of that which you used to do. And Ibn al Qayyim, he uses these types of verses to prove that uh, Allah Zawajal, he, he has created causes and effects. And from those is that he will enter the people of paradise into paradise on account of the Causes which are the actions, the actions which they used to do. So this is how a person enters into paradise. And so to deny this is a great, great mistake and it is a great and tremendous harm upon the religion of Islam. So this was the fourth benefit that Iman is something in belief, in speech, in action and the outward is tied to the inward. Just to give you an example, if, if there was a person or a, you know, a parent or a husband, for example, or a father, and you know, he claimed to love his wife or to love his children, and in the whole of his time, not a single deed, not a single expression, not a single word of love and you know, mercy ever emanated from him towards his wife or his children. Can this ever be true? Can this be true? It's impossible. It is impossible. Rather, there must appear from his speech, from his action, from his behavior, that which is the result of, of, of his love in his heart. Right? So this is an impossible situation that people are trying to claim. That there can be iman in the heart, and it can be complete and perfect, without a person doing a single obligatory deed. This is impossible. And this is this evil innovation that the scholars spoke against when you basically claim and you say that there can be complete iman in the heart without a person doing a single obligatory deed. This is impossible. This cannot take place. And this is what the, the extreme, the murji was saying, the innovators, at the, you know, uh, Jahan bin Safwan and others, that you know, perfect iman can exist in the heart without you doing a single righteous deed externally. So all of this is corruption and misguidance. We say belief is speech. Uh, iman, faith is belief, speech and action. It is inward and outward. And the inward and outward are connected like this. They cannot be separated. The fifth benefit 
that we take from this is, for, is the excellence, a mention of the virtue and the excellence of removing something harmful from the flaw. A Muslim is one who removes the things which harm others in the public highways, in the public walkways, things which affect the public. And this also it shows to us the excellence of Islam in the sense that how can Islam which commands and you know praises the act of removing something harmful from the flaw and then at the same time encourage the killing and the slaughter of innocent men, women and children. How, how can you reconcile these two things? If Islam is mentioning from the great virtues of, of Iman that you remove harm from, the, from coming to people, even if that's just removing a piece of glass from the floor, or removing some thorns from the floor, some debris from the floor. And your intention here is that you don't want harm to come to other people. How then can, how can you recon- reconcile this with you know, uh, what is claimed by either the extremists or the terrorists, or the haters of Islam, uh, who, you know, who make the likes of these claims. This, this cannot be reconciled. And so Islam uh, encourages that in which there is benefit for the, for the individual and likewise for the, for, the, for the society, for the people who are in the society. So this is the excellence of removing something harmful from the flaw. This is how a Muslim thinks. He doesn't want harm to come to other people. And the next benefit then is regarding the end part of the hadith, which is al-haya'ah. What is the meaning of al-haya? What is the definition? We often say shame, modesty, these types of words, but what is the actual meaning? What is it practically? What does it mean? And the answer to that is that uh, al-haya is a feeling by which you are prevented from falling into those things which are haram, which are unlawful. So it is like a type of shame. You feel ashamed to embark upon Allah's disobedience. That feeling that you have which prevents you from falling into Allah's disobedience, this is haya, this is al-haya. And likewise, that feeling that prevents you from abandoning the obligations, this now is haya as well. So if you do not have al-haya, if you do not, if you don't, do not have any this feeling, then it will mean that you will do as you please. You will fall into that which Allah has made haram. You will abandon that which Allah has made obligatory upon you. And that's why we see in another hadith that from the things that were said in the previous nations, uh, if you have no shame, fasna' ma shi'it. If you have no shame, then do as you wish. So the shame, al-haya, is something that makes you keep away from that which Allah has prohibited and made haram and makes you embark upon that which he has made obligatory upon you. So this is the feeling that, that leads to these two things. Now, we have to be clear that this feeling of al-haya, which is often translated as modesty as well, to be humble, to be modest, we must not confuse this with, for example, uh, when, when you must... Uh, speak against falsehood, right? When there is falsehood, then to speak against, fa- to, to, sorry, to, to be silent against falsehood is not from modesty, right? It is not from modesty. That when you see batil, when you see misguidance and deviation and corruption and sin and all these different things, that it is not al-haya to now be modest and shy and all of these kind of ideas. This is wrong. Nor is it you know, when, when there is a, 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 a wrong which has been committed, committed and someone's right has been taken to now be shy and humble and to be modest. This now is not al-haya. Because this, this now is cowardice. This is jubin. This is cowardice. So we shouldn't confuse what, you know, to, to speak the truth and to invalidate falsehood. And likewise, to establish the rights of people when their rights have been wronged, when someone's right has been taken from him and he's been harmed in his wealth or his honor or his person, his body, then to establish that right and to you know, uh, argue for that right, 
then all of this, this does not clash with al-hiyah. This, this is from al-hiyah. This is, this is to, 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 to be compliant with Allah Azawajal in accordance with the two things that we mentioned earlier on. So, some people, you know, they say, they, 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 some of the people of deviation, when Ahlul Sunnati wal Jama'ah, when the people who adhere to the way of the Sahaba, and the Tabi'een, and the way of the Salaf, and they enjoin the good, and they prohibit the evil, and they warn against deviations in Islam, then some of the, you know, the, the, the deceptive statements some of these people say, are oh, you being arrogant, this is arrogance, you're being arrogant. And you think that you are the best and everybody else is misguided. Why don't you be humble? Why don't you be, have some modesty and have some humility? Why are you so arrogant? They bring these types of counter, you know, these statements. And so a person should not be confused and deceived by the likes of these, of these slogans. It is from Al-Haya to establish the truth. It is from Al-Haya to establish the rights of people. To remain silent in the face of falsehood. Like we see people, you know, spreading false statements, false ideas about the religion, spreading the innovations, whether of the, of, of the Sufis or of the Khawarij, or of the various, you know, factions, those who deny Allah's attributes and so on and so forth. It is not, you're not being modest and humble when you remain silent. This is not modest in humility. Rather, to speak against that falsehood, if you have the knowledge and you have the ability then this is this is this is from you know from from the, the the rights and the obligations of the religion upon you if you have the ability uh, to do so so this brings us really to an end of the the points that we can take from this hadith these five or six points and we find that the scholars have on the basis of this hadith they have gone through all of the texts of the quran and the sunnah and they've listed the 70 odd branches and the most famous of the works in this regard is the work of Imam al-Bayhaqi, rahimahullah. And uh, the, the book is Shu'ab al-Iman, the branches of Iman. So he's listed all 70, 77 branches he's basically listed in uh, this work of his. So this is the end of this hadith number four, the first hadith of our lesson today, hadith number four. This now moves, now this now takes us to the next hadith. Bab fi annaha sababun li ziyadatil iman wa tajdeedihi. Chapter that it, meaning the kalima, la ilaha illallah, is a cause of the increase in iman and the renewal of iman. It increases your iman and it refreshes and renews your iman. Now the hadith that is brought in this chapter is actually, it is da'if, uh, but the meaning is correct. And so the hadith is related by Abu Huraira, radiyallahu anhu, قَالْ قَالَ رَسُولُ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهُ وَسَلَّمْ جَدِّدُوا إِيمَانَكُمْ جَدِّدُوا إِيمَانَكُمْ Revive your faith, renew your faith. قِيلْ يَا رَسُولُ اللَّهِ وَكَيْفَ نُجَدِّدْ إِيمَانُنَا O Messenger of Allah, it was said, O Messenger of Allah, how can we revive or renew our faith? قَالْ أَكْثِرُوا مِنْ قَوْلِ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ أَكْثِرُوا Make an abundance of the statement, the speech, لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ The statement, لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ so as I said, the hadith is, is da'if, but nevertheless, the actual meaning, if you look at the meaning, then it, the meaning uh, is correct. And uh, from the benefits that can be taken from this, first of all, is that iman increases and decreases. A person's faith, it can increase and decrease. Hence, the command in this hadith, what is related in this hadith, jaddidu imanakum. Revive, renew, refresh your religion or your faith. So this is the first point. And this is, as we discussed in the previous hadith, this is the aqidah of Ahl-Sunnati wal-Jama'ah, that iman increases and it decreases. If iman is made of many elements, beliefs, statements, actions, and then we see the people vary in how much of this iman they bring, and at times people can bring 
many of these actions of faith, at other times people can be lax. This then makes it clear to us, obviously, that iman will increase and decrease in a person. It will always be increasing or decreasing. So it increases with obedience, and it decreases with disobedience to Allah. The second benefit that we take from this is that... Um, Obviously here the example was given by the statement La ilaha illallah. And this is the highest of the levels of iman. So if we are commanded to renew iman by way of the highest branch, then it also applies to the other branches as well. In other words, it is an encouragement to us to increase our iman by way of all of the actions of obedience. So in this hadith, the example was given by way of the highest branch, but it therefore includes all of the, le- the, the, the lower branches as well. So the hadith therefore is an encouragement, or encouragement for us to seek an increase in our iman. So a person, every day, he says to himself, how can I increase my iman today? What can I do to increase my iman today? And so whatever deeds he finds that are available to him, whether it is a giving of charity, whether it is just to be nice to his, to his children or to his family, or whatever else to do supererogatory deeds, whether that be prayer, whether that be uh, you know, fasting, he thinks to himself, how can I renew and increase my iman? And so this hadith is an encouragement to that. The third benefit is that because the Messenger of Allah, he used the example of La ilaha illallah, then this indicates that the best of that by which a person renews his iman and that which increases his iman is to understand the issue of tawheed. Because la ilaha illallah is expressing tawheed. And so when a person uh, reminds himself of the meaning of la ilaha illallah, it is an increase in his iman. How and why is that? It is because when a person thinks and reflects about the ma'na, the meaning of la ilaha illallah, and he knows that it means that none deserves to be worshipped except Allah alone. And it means that Allah alone is the one who has all of the traits and qualities of rububiyyah and uluhiyyah. So he remembers all of these, the qualities and the names and attributes of Allah azawajal. And all of this, he's bringing this to mind, and the perfection of Allah, and the the kamal and the jamal, the beauty and the perfection of Allah in his through his names and his attributes. So when a believer he grasps all of these things and these meanings, he sees them branching off from La ilaha illallah. These meanings come to his mind. Then he will make great the issue of obedience to Allah. And the right of Allah, the, the, the right of Allah now becomes great in his eyes. When he brings all of these meanings, to, to, to remembers them in his mind. So the right of Allah becomes great to him. And therefore the issue of obedience and disobedience becomes great to him. And this then it leads him to uh, give Allah his true estimation. To... to estimate Allah, to have a true and just estimation of Allah as, you know, he truly should have a just estimation made of him. And so this is the effect of when a person, he says, La ilaha illallah, repeated with understanding the meaning, not just saying it, but stopping, thinking, reflecting, what am I saying? What is its meaning? What is its implications? And so from this, this is why the issue of Tawheed, we believe, and that's why the whole Quran indicates this, that with Tawheed, Allah Azawajal, He rectifies the servant and the land. The land and the servant are corrected by way of Tawheed. When there is corruption, when there is sin, when there is oppression, when there is tyranny, when there is all of the social ills, the social evils, the things which destroy a nation, whether that is usury, interest, whether that is alcohol, whether that is gambling, whether that is fornication, all of these things are what we call the, the things which destroy a nation. These things, 
And likewise, all of the superstitions and false beliefs, when you see that in nations there are magicians and soothsayers and people who play with the people's emotions and sentiments and embezzle their wealth and on the basis of false ideas, false beliefs, omens, superstitions, but all these different things, and then there's idolatry, polytheism, obviously, which is like a foundation upon which all these things then come. Allah He rectified the earth by way of Tawheed. And this is why He sent the messengers. And so when we reflect upon what we just mentioned here about repeating La ilaha illallah and renewing one's faith by La ilaha illallah, this then is a rectification of the society because a person then truly understands the right of Allah and how great it is and how great it is to disobey Him and how sin is, you know, as the Salaf used to say, do not look at the smallness of the sin, but look at the greatness of the one whom you are disobeying. That's how the Salaf would look at sin. That even the, the most trivial of sin, it's not trivial. Because you're not looking at the sin itself, you're looking at the one whom you are disobeying. The greatness of Allah So therefore every sin becomes you know, tremendous and, and, and big to a believer. A believer sees his sin as if he's standing in front of a mountain. Whereas the hypocrite and other than you know, those like them, their sin is like a fly that's flying in front of his face and he just goes like this and he tries to move it away from his, from his face. So this is the nature of sin. And so when a person, this Tawheed is rooted in his heart and he studies Tawheed, then you see that the sin will, will diminish in the society and Allah's blessings will be placed upon the society or they will remain in the society. So this is the effect of the statement of La ilaha illallah when it is done and remembered in this manner. And as for those, so, so really this, this kalima la ilaha illallah, when we repeat it, it, it forces us to have a true and a just estimation of Allah. And so this brings us to the verse in the Quran, وَمَا قَدَرُ اللَّهَ حَقَّ قَدْرِهِ They have not made any true or just estimation of Allah. Referring here to, the, to various groups, to the disbelievers who disbelieve in Him and who you know, worship others uh, besides Him. And so Ibn al-Qayyim, rahimahullah ta'ala, in his book Al-Jawab al-Kafi, he gives a brief explanation or commentary upon this verse what it means that they have made no just estimation of Allah. And he gives examples of how people, they fall into what Allah has mentioned in this ayah. We mention a few of them. From them, first of all, is he says that those who worship others besides Allah, they haven't made a true estimation of Allah. How is this and why is this? It is because the mushrik or the one who worships others, the one who calls upon others, he is calling upon those who are not able to create even the smallest and the weakest and insignificant of creatures. There is none which, which can create even, for example, a fly or the wing of, or, or a fly. And so when a person is worshipping these things besides Allah, he is worshipping the weakest of creation, the most incapable of creation, who can't even create even a fly. So he cannot be making any true just estimation of Allah if he's worshipping others besides Allah who are so weak and insignificant and powerless. It means that in his heart he truly could not have made a just estimation of who Allah is and his greatness with all of his names and his attributes and the greatness of his right that he should be worshipped alone. So this is one person who falls into this verse. وَمَا قَدَرُ اللَّهَ حَقَّ قَدْرِهِ That they did not make any true just estimation of Allah. Likewise, those who fall into this verse are those who say from the non-Muslims and other than them, they say that Allah or the Creator, He did not send any messengers nor did He reveal any books. He just left the creation to their own devices and neglected them and left them, you know, it's as if they are saying that Allah He created the creation in vain, without purpose. So this also is not a true or just estimation of Allah. 
Likewise, those who deny his names and his attributes from the Jahmiyyah and the Mu'tazila, from the Ash'aris and other than them, who to some degree or the other they deny Allah's attributes and his highness above the creation and that he will be seen in the hereafter and that he speaks with speech, which is his speech, and all the various other sifat, then likewise they have not made any true just estimation of Allah. Because by way of his names and attributes, do the hearts know him? And do the hearts venerate him? And do the hearts then, are they led to worshipping him and obeying him? So by undermining these names and attributes of Allah, you are basically undermining faith in the hearts of the people. And you are, un- you are undermining Islam. You are stripping faith from their hearts. And so likewise, these people also have not made any true or just estimation of Allah Azawajal, the deniers of the attributes. Likewise, those who deny the, the Qudra and the Mashi'ah of Allah, the fact that Allah, everything comes under His will and His power, that nothing escapes His will and power, that nothing takes place except by His will and power. They too have not made a true and just estimation of Allah because by claiming otherwise, when they say that man creates his own actions and man is able to act outside of Allah's <coughs> Allah's knowledge as the extreme ones amongst them say or outside of Allah's will and power as the mainstream qadaris say then this is not a true and just estimation of Allah and there are many other ways uh, by which a person will fall into this likewise the Christians when they say that he has a son then likewise they have not made a true and just estimation of Allah so the point being that when we say La ilaha illallah and we are frequently repeating this kalima all of these meanings that you have seen here that we've mentioned here Allah's right to be worshipped alone that Allah did not leave the creation without purpose He sent them books and messengers that Allah is described with attributes and names which are from the most beautiful names and from the most uh, from the, the, the lofty of attributes and that Allah everything comes under his qudra and mashiyah, nothing escapes his power or his will. And that he's free of a, of, of a son and a, a partner and all these things. All of this is a true, is making a true and just estimation of Allah. And when we do that, this then leads us to venerate Allah and to, it then leads us to other actions. It leads us to other actions of iman, to righteousness, to bir, and so on and so forth. And so this is so we can see clearly now, Jaddidu Imanakum. Refresh and renew your faith. This kalima is the foundation of that. And when you think of this kalima with its meaning, in light of what we've discussed, it will produce the fruits. It will lead you to righteous actions. And so this is why we must frequently repeat this statement, La ilaha illallah with meaning, with understanding of what it means. This then brings us to the next hadith, which is hadith number six. Bab an-nasahibaha ma'asumuddam wal-mal. Chapter that the one who says la ilaha illallah, then he is, his blood and wealth becomes sacred, becomes inviolable. It cannot be violated. The one who says la ilaha illallah. And this is based upon the hadith of Abu Huraira, radiallahu anhu which is reported by Muslim, that the Messenger of Allah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, said, أُمِرْتُ أَنْ أُقَاتِلَ النَّاسِ حَتَّى يَقُولُوا لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ I've been ordered to fight back against the people. I've been ordered to fight back against the people. Until they say, لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ فَمَنْ قَالَ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا اللَّهِ Whoever says La ilaha illallah asima minni maluhu wa nafsuhu illa bihaqqihi wa hisabihi ala Allah. So anyone who says La ilaha illallah, then his wealth and his, his self is protected from me. Except on account of a right of La ilaha illallah. Because this kalima has rights. And his then and his accountability is with Allah. His hisab, his reckoning is with Allah. So this hadith now 
there are a number of benefits that we take from this hadith and we see that from the from from the obvious the first benefit that relates to our topic is that the kalima la ilaha illallah is so great and so lofty that for it was jihad legislated jihad was legislated for it and in order to raise this kalima up high and to spread this kalima now obviously this topic of jihad itself is a great and detailed topic and when we speak of the topic of jihad we have to speak with that which is the truth and in opposition to you know the extremists and the terrorists who commit sedition and terrorism and you know those kind of deeds which have nothing to do with jihad the lofty institution of jihad it has nothing to do with jihad what they do extremism and terrorism and suicide bombings and uh, you know whatever else uh, that they fall into this has got nothing to do with with jihad jihad is a noble and lofty institution and whoever looks at jihad in islam will find that this jihad is is comprises justice and moderation and balance and you will see that when you look at different different nations and you see take for example the yahud for example when we look at that which is found in the torah or that which is alleged to be the torah and we look at basically you know that which is the jihad with them and with them jihad is vengeance and revenge and killing and slaughter and no mercy and annihilating whole you know cities and towns and villages and men and women and children and even the donkeys and the animals you don't leave them alive you burn everything you dist- everything annihilation this is the impression that you get no mercy and then on the other hand you see those who say well we turn the other cheek you slap me you slap me on this one i will give you that one slap that one as well and this is the what the christians claim this is what they say turn the other cheek this is what they allege this is what they claim as for their history it says something else the history of you know christian europe traveling all over the world slaughtering millions of people who never gave them a single slap on any cheek like you know the indians in uh, america the aborigines in australia in Af- parts of africa parts of asia wiping out millions of people in the name of the glory of god and in the name of of jesus as as they say so that's what they say slap one cheek will give the other one but in practice in history in actual fact in reality that's not what we see but that's what it's supposed to be let's say it is let's say it is that it's it's you know uh, pacifist and no violence and so so forth so if that was true then how can you spread the message the message of truth you will not spread the message of truth with pacifism nor will you spread the message of truth with anger vengeance death destruction violence no mercy because the people will see that this this cannot be this cannot be right this message will not appeal to them in their hearts when they see injustice like this so islam when we speak of islam when we speak of this the institution of jihad in islam when we study it in detail we will see that it is it is just there is perfect justice in the way that islam has legislated jihad there's no injustice in it at all it is in moderation and it is to spread the kalima la ilaha illallah with argumentation with preaching with wisdom to the people and if there is hostility and there is aggression and there is oppression and there is violence then islam has legislated the use of jihad to repel aggression and that's why in this hadith we see that the scholars like sheikh al-islam ibn taymi he says he comments upon this hadith and he says muraduhu muraduhu meaning the intent of the messenger when he said this qital al-muharibin fighting those who are muharibin those who are waging war alladhina adhina allah fi qitalihim those with respect to whom allah has given permission that they be fought lam yurid qital al-mu'ahadin he did not intend by this to fight against those with whom there are contracts 
an agreement and covenant. الَّذِينَ أَمَرَ اللَّهُ بِوَفَاءِ أَحْدِهِمْ Those with respect to whom Allah has ordered that you, are, that, that you are truthful in your covenant and you fulfill your covenant in your agreement uh, with respect to them. So now, now there are many, many, many details. Uh, we can't really go into all of the details with respect to the issue of jihad. In short, all we can say that jihad, it follows the rule of law. There is the rule of law in nations. Islam also has a rule of law. Meaning that, that the law is not haphazard. There's no chaos. Everything has a rule of law. And within Islam, the rule of law is such that the rulers and his delegates, that there are certain affairs which are only for them. And that's why we see this principle, it is mentioned. It is a matter of, of belief for us. We see that the Salaf used to mention in their creed that the issue of the Jum'ah and the Jama'ah, the prayers, the, 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 the Jum'ah and the Jama'ah and the Eid, and likewise the issue of Jihad, all of that is be, behind the rulers. It is the rulers who coordinate and who arrange those affairs and make decisions in those affairs. It follows the rule of law. And the rulers have with, him, with them a variety of different options. Towards different groups of people. Just like the messenger of Allah He had different... On the one hand he was fighting the mushrikeen who were fighting him. As we see as per this hadith. On the other hand he, has treaties and, he had treaties and covenants with other people. On the other hand... Even after the verses of jihad were revealed... And the, 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 the verse of jizya... There were delegations coming to him... And he was debating with them and arguing with them. So with them... He was following other verses in the Quran, you know, uh, that, that relate to da'wah. Ud'u ila sabili rabbik. The ayah, which mentions call to the ways of your Lord with, with, with wisdom, with good preaching, with wisdom, and argue with them which ways with, with, which are best. So all of these different approaches to different types of people, all of them, they, they are still in effect. They can take place at the same time. And the ruler behaves in accordance with the circumstances and likewise, the ruler also has the option. He also has. That if he wants to take Islam, and he wants to spread Islam, then he has the right to do that as well. We don't deny that. And this is just a fact of history and a fact of nations. When you look in history, it is just a fact of life that civilizations come, they go, they spread, they take their message or their values or their culture to other places, they conquer. This is just the nature of civilization. In history, we've seen this, the Egyptian Empire, the Egyptian civilization, wherever it was spread, the Roman Empire, the Persian Empire, the, you know, in, in, in West Africa, the, the empire or the civilization of Mali, which was a, a big empire, very rich empire, the Mayas, the Incas in the, in the Americas, and, you know, everywhere you go, there's civilizations, they come, they go, they spread the message, they conquer. This is just a fact of, fact of, fact of life. And that's why you see world wars taking place, people wanting to spread their economic policies, political ideas, right? Like we see now where we have the, the, the American empire all across the world, the military spreading, you know, whatever the message. This is, this, is, this, is, this is the nature of civilization. And so Islam too, because it is the truth, because Tawheed and, you know, the, the message of Islam, rectification of the earth, and all the things which it prohibits, usury, fornication, gambling, all of which a nation destroys, then it is from justice that a ruler takes this message to people who will benefit from it, whose nations will benefit from it. So he has that, he has that uh, option available to him as well. And we don't deny that. But it follows the rule of law. It is done with, with uprightness and with you know, following the rules of, of, of you know, the, as, as, as I said, the rules of law. And so, so the first point that we take from this is the legislation of jihad by way of which the word of Allah, kalima la ilaha illallah, is made uppermost. Second benefit that we take from this is that the messenger of Allah is someone who when he legislates, it does not come from him, it comes from Allah why? Because at the beginning he said, Umirtu. Umirtu an uqatil an nas. I have been commanded. Where did the command come from? It came from Allah. 
So the Messenger of Islam, he's, he, he legislates, but that legislation is coming from Allah Azza wa Jal. He himself does not bring anything from himself. Third benefit is that the intent, again from, as we said, the, the jihad, it is to establish the rights of La ilaha illallah. La ilaha illallah has rights, and it is to establish those rights. It is not for shedding blood, nor is it to establish a state. Right? It is not to shed blood. Jihad is not to shed blood. Because if it was, then, again, we're coming back to the issue of jihad now, and the rulings, and the fiqh, and, and so on and so forth. And the scholars mention an issue, they say, on what basis are we fighting? What, what, on what basis is, is iqtal? Is it because of kufr? Meaning that someone is upon kufr. Or is it because of other factors like al-hiraba? Which is that they are engaged in war. And the answer to this question is, that the, the correct answer is explained by uh, Ibn Taymiyyah and likewise Ibn al-Qayyim, that it is not because of disbelief in and of itself. In other words, when, we, when, when the ruler engages in, in jihad and he fights, it is not because you are a disbeliever, therefore I'm fighting you. Just that on its own. Just, just that on its own. Because otherwise, women would, be, would have to be killed, children would have to be killed, monks and priests would be the first ones to be killed because they are really the, the leaders and, the, and the, the callers and the promoters. And the, you know. But all of this in Islam is prohibited. We are prohibited to kill priests and monks. This is in jihad now. They are prohibited to kill priests and monks in monasteries. We are prohibited to kill any of those people who are involved in professions which have got nothing to do with fighting. Right? So that's also something that the scholars discuss. That those, for example, someone is just he picks apples off the trees or something. You know, this is his job. We, we can't fight it. We, we, we can't kill this, these types of professions. Nor can we kill women, nor can we kill children, nor can we kill you know, those who are disabled or the old, like this. So if the reason was that you are being fought and killed because you are a disbeliever, this is not true, this is not correct. Rather it is the, you know, the factor of al-hiraba, that you fight, that you are engaged in fighting, you are an able-bodied person, you are fighting against us, and so therefore we fight you back. So, um, so the point being, Jihad is not to shed blood. It's not about shedding blood. And this shows that the non-Muslims have so many misconceptions in their minds that they don't... And that's because lies are spread. And if they were to only go beyond the surface and look a bit deeper, they would see the, the, the tremendous regulations and the, and the tremendous justice in, in the rules of, of warfare within, within Islam. So, Jihad is not about shedding blood. Nor is it to establish a state. So all those groups which appeared in the 20th century, Al-Ikhwan al-Muslimun, Jama'at Islami of Maududi in Pakistan, Hizb al-Tahrir, and then all of the offshoots, and they tell this lie that Islam is all about establishing political authority. This is kadhib. This is a lie against Islam. Rather, Islam is to establish the tawheed of Allah azawajal. To establish his worship. And it is Allah who then bestows authority to people when they fit the qualities and characteristics that, de- that make them deserving of having authority on the land, which is to worship Allah alone and to abandon shirk and to believe and do righteous deeds. So, Islam is not about establishing political authority. Again, this is a misconception. So one misconception is that Islam is just about shedding blood. And the other misconception is that Islam is just about establishing political control and authority. And of course, when they see groups like ISIS and Al-Qaeda, this is what they believe. This is, this is what Islam is calling to, because these people, that's what they do. Spill blood and claim that Islam is about establishing political authority. And this is not true. This shows their misunderstanding of what Islam, what Islam is. So, it is to establish the rights that follow, follow, that follow on from the shahada of La ilaha illallah. And not about shedding blood, spilling blood, nor about establishing a state. The next benefit is that 
the hadith establishes that by which um, uh, that there are other rights which follow on from the shahada la ilaha illallah which a person must bring and these are things like prayer and fasting and zakah because we see the hadith has come in another version in another version so another version of the same hadith mentions that I've been ordered to fight back against the people until they say la ilaha illallah. Testify that none has the right to worship except Allah and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah and establish the prayer and give the zakah. So these are now from the rights of the kalima la ilaha illallah. Also the hadith mentions that by which a person's his, his life becomes sacred, inviolable, which is the testimony of La ilaha illallah. And uh, this shows also at the same time, the hadith, illa bihaqqihi, that a person can also leave Islam, can invalidate his Islam, by way of a statement or a belief or an action, or, or he falls into actions which necessitate uh, capital punishment, like for example, um, the law of retribution. He kills someone, he murders someone, or he engages in actions which are corruption upon the earth, like highway robbery, or rape, or things like this, where you put fear into the society. These things, the ruler, he can impose capital punishment upon that person for these affairs. So, uh, all of these meanings are indicated that we take from this particular hadith. So, we'll conclude our lesson there today, inshallah ta'ala, upon this uh, third hadith, uh, and we'll continue. In the next lesson with the with you know what follows inshallah ta'ala walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in